Hello, and welcome to Addicted to Murder. This is Courtney, licensed therapist with 10 years of experience. And I'm Trisha, and my favorite time of the day is the blue hour. What's the blue hour? The blue hour is when the sun is far enough below the horizon that the blue wavelengths are dominant to the naked eye. And this is due to the shockwave absorption caused by ozone. Oh, I had no idea. Now you do, and now you'll know what you're looking at when you're in its presence. I'm excited to see it. <laughs> well, I just wanted to apologize for some of the bloopers I made last week. Uh, at one point, I said Rebecca instead of Roberta. I said 1975 when I said meant to say 1974, and we both mispronounced Chi Omega. We were saying Chi Omega because neither one of us were in sororities. That's true. If you ever notice that we make a blunder that you think we need to um, remedy, please give us an email shout out to addictedtomurderpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can send us a DM or comment on our Facebook or Instagram, which is at addicted to M podcast. We are also available now on Amazon and Audible, and we are working to get onto Google Podcasts and iHeartRadio. But as with everything else, we are struggling with the technology. We'll get there. We're, we're getting better. I really think so. So last week, we left off with Bundy's arrest in Florida, uh, which was on February 15th, 1978. The trial didn't start until June 1979, when he was charged with two counts of murder for the killings of Levy and Bowman, which in Florida meant the death penalty if he was convicted. Uh, as with his previous trial in Colorado, Ted wanted to be in control of his own defense, and he frequently ignored or actively went against the advice of his team of lawyers. Before the trial started, Ted was offered a plea deal, in which he would receive a sentence of 75 years in prison for a, a guilty plea. Ted's team did encourage him to take this deal because they felt that the likelihood of him being acquitted is very slim. But at the last minute, Ted backed out of the deal because he just couldn't bring himself to say he was guilty in a public forum. And it would have been very public, as Ted's trial was the first in the United States to be televised. And there were more than 250 reporters present in that courtroom. Courtney, how do you think this public spectacle influenced Bundy's behaviors? I think that Ted probably loved all of the attention. You know, his whole life he wanted to be someone special, someone, you know, that people were talking about and thinking about. And suddenly there's these cameras and journalists and millions of people wanting to know all about him. And he was hearing them talk about, you know, how handsome he was and how smart he was. And in a way, just by giving all this attention, kind of like praising him for being so successful at killing people. The whole thing was just perfect for stroking the narcissistic part of his personality. Well, Bundy smiled a lot. He seemed very sure of himself, very arrogant. I suggest you watch some of these trial videos. You can find them on YouTube. He definitely played to the cameras. He got to pretend to be a great attorney, and he really thought that he'd be able to argue himself out of a guilty verdict. So I'm thinking, um, but I want to ask your opinion, that at this point, it, it appears that he definitely has narcissistic personality disorder traits. Do you agree? And can you describe for us what narcissistic personality disorder actually is? So someone with narcissistic personality disorder um, you would see them having an inflated sense of self-importance, including an overestimation of their ability or skills. They have an excessive need for admiration, 
and seek it out whenever possible. Um, and they also feel entitled to special treatment. Um, and then kind of on the other side, they're also extremely sensitive and reactive to any kind of criticism. So if we look at Ted's behavior and compare it to like these criteria, I think it's pretty safe to say that Ted was definitely a narcissist. And you can um, have narcissistic traits, but not be diagnosed as an NPD. Is that correct? Or narcissistic personality disorder? That's right. So in order to get the narcissistic personality disorder um, kind of label or diagnosis, um, it has to be um, kind of a certain number of these traits and they have to occur in like a pattern that has been continuous over time. Right. So, I mean, I think we can all say we know people that have narcissistic traits or even, you know, we probably all, including ourselves, have some sort of narcissistic traits, but it doesn't mean that we have this um, almost false reality that it seems like Ted was living in um, with, you know, that he is, he definitely thought he was the shit. I mean, would you agree? He thought he was smarter than everybody. Uh, He was always putting on a show. And if you watch anything with him, at least what I watched, he's like smug and he smirks and like he thinks he's better. Right. And that ultimately is the the main belief in um, NPD is that you are somehow better than everyone else and you have to at all costs make sure that that is the image that is always portrayed. So the first trial focused on the murders of the Chi Omega house. Evidence against him included eyewitnesses that placed him at the scene with the murder weapon and the testimony of two forensic odontologists, which are, uh, they study teeth and skeletal remains, right, to figure out people's, who they are based on dental records? Right. Essentially, they're like a forensic dentist. Okay. Yeah. And they confirmed that the bite marks on the victims were matched to Ted's teeth. The jury in that trial took only seven hours to find him guilty on July 24th, 1979, and he was sentenced to death. Um, do you think that seven hours is a pretty quick time to find someone guilty? It seems like it is to me when you hear about these other trials that they deliberate for days. Absolutely. Seven hours is very short, especially on a capital murder case where they know that the death penalty is an option. Um, so I believe, like, they have to be 100%. Um, everyone agrees to move forward. So obviously Ted did not <laughs> did not do what he set out to do. Um, and he was not as great of a lawyer as he thought. Correct. Six months later, Ted was in court again to face the charge of murder for the killing of little 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. He again chose, I don't know why, I guess at this point, what has he got to lose, to do most of the work of his defense himself. According to one of his attorneys, Polly Nelson, she said, quote, Ted sabotaged the entire defense effort out of spite, distrust, and grandiose delusion. What are your thoughts on this, Courtney? Well, if we kind of take that idea of Ted being a narcissist and, you know, believing that he is the greatest ever, you know, he clearly believed that his unfinished law degree made him a better fit to represent himself than the whole team of defense attorneys that were assigned to him. Um, And then also there's um, this thing I was hearing about it being reported that Ted had a really hard time understanding how witnesses and law enforcement were able to like link or believe the evidence against him. 
Um, and so I think it was part of that kind of arrogance of like, they're never going to believe that this was me or, you know, why would they, you know, think that I did it? How can they link it to me? Thinking that he was so good that he was going to get away with it all. Um, I think it just shows a good example of how out of touch he really was with reality and other people's perspectives. Well, and if you look at the chaos surrounding the trial and all of the reporters that were there stroking his ego um, and all of these women who would say that they weren't afraid of Ted. He was too good looking. He, there was no way he could do this. Or on the other side, people who acknowledged that he probably did this, but were giving him accolades for getting away with it so long. I could see how Ted's ego would inflate. Absolutely. The evidence against him was pretty strong by the standards of the day, including an eyewitness to the abduction and fibers found on the victim's body that matched the jacket worn by Bundy. He was once again convicted of murder after less than eight hours this time and was sentenced to death again on February 10th, 1980. Um, The judge at one of his trials at the end um, had this to say. This is a quote. Take care of yourself, young man. I say that to you sincerely. I say that to you sincerely. Take care of yourself. It is an utter tragedy for this court to see such a total waste of humanity, I think, as I've ever experienced in this courtroom. You're a bright young man. You'd have made a good lawyer, and I would have loved to have you practice in front of me. But you went another way, partner. I don't feel any animosity towards you. I want you to know that. Take care of yourself. What do you think about what this judge had to say? You know, I think it just shows the level to which Ted was kind of masterful at putting on a show, right? And, you know, seemingly he, in a way, kind of charmed charmed this judge um, into believing that it was possible for him to have a normal and successful life. Well, uh, that makes that makes sense. Yeah, and now a side note um, that demonstrates the intensity uh, I think of his narcissism and need for control was Ted's impromptu marriage in the courtroom during the trial. He used a very obscure law that stated that a marriage was legal if it was stated in, as such in a courtroom with a judge presiding. So Ted proposed to and then declared marriage to. Carol Ann Boone, a caseworker from Washington who was there testifying as a character witness on Ted's behalf. There is speculation as well that Ted was able to bribe some prison guards to arrange conjugal visits, which were not supposed to be allowed, Um, and Carol gave birth to a daughter in October of 1981 that all reports say belonged to Ted. So this this seems kind of like a... Do you think that he did this just to make his trial even more crazy popping the question in a courtroom i saw a video of this and you know he just kind of swaggered over to her i think she was on the witness stand right she was yeah and just said will you marry me and she said yes and then they were married and it was just what the hell is going on what do you think about what he did well you know ted was a smart guy, right? And he had known Carol for a long time. Um, they definitely met and connected romantically before the trial started. And so it's very possible that this could have been like a plan that they had. 
Um, kind of in that idea that um, believing people might be less likely to like convict him or follow through with the execution um, if they could see him kind of like a, a family man kind of thing. Sorry if you heard my dog growling. And then what about, um, do you think he... Do you think he had sex with Carol M. Boone just to have sex, or do you think he was trying to conceive a child to go along with this family man uh, persona? You know, that is not something that I really thought that much about. Um, but I mean, it's it's possible that it was, like I said, something planned. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's possible that it was just a, hey, I kind of, want to have some sexual activity right now, and this is the person that I can do it with. Do you think Ted was satisfied with that kind of sexual activity? I mean, I imagine so. I mean, he did have, you know, regular relationships prior to kind of Carol Ann Boone, well, as regular as he could be. I know we didn't talk very much about it in past episodes, but he did have a multiple-year-long relationship um, with a woman uh, all through sort of his like murdering years and during that time kind of played a, a stepfather kind of role to that woman's child as well. Right. And uh, again, I'm referencing Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me. She does talk about that woman in it quite a lot. And I believe that woman even went to the police at one point with suspicions of Ted in Seattle. So because she was dating him when, when he was in Seattle and then he moved to Utah. And when he moved to Utah, all the Seattle killings stopped and then the Utah killings started. So um, her friend, I think, encouraged her to go talk to the police. And I don't think that the police really... They had so many tips at that time of people named Ted because of the Lake Snohomish um, incident where people had heard that his name was Ted. So... Um, so she definitely had doubts, but he would talk her out of those doubts for a long time. I mean, until it, until she finally was like, nope, done. Right. I think they were together on and off for like six or eight years. Right, right. Um, so in death penalty cases, appeals are, fi- uh, excuse me, appeals are filed almost automatically. And Ted and his team tried many different tactics to try to get him off a death row. Ted began giving interviews to journalists and different psychologists. He would provide gory details of his crimes, and he would attempt to build an insanity defense because that would have meant that Ted was deemed incompetent to stand trial, and they could have thrown out that trial, both trials. His original scheduled execution date was March 4, 1986, and he was granted a stay to explore these mental health issues. His appeal was ultimately denied. His team continued to try different ways to delay, including alleging misconduct in the trial, offering up locations and identities of his victims, blaming pornography, which we went over before, and even helping the FBI in their search for the Green River Killer, who was at this time going crazy um, out there killing many people. All through this time, Ted was doing public interviews and meeting with several well-known psychiatrists, as we said, uh, for evaluation. These interviews did lead to a number of different diagnoses and theories about Ted's thinking, but there was real, no real, there was really no consensus amongst them all. Courtney, can you explain what these different assessments and their differing results may mean? Absolutely. Yeah. So 
I know the first evaluation was completed shortly after his arrest in 1975 um, by Dr. Al Carlisle. So this was actually before the murder. This arrest. was um, the abduction? Yes, okay. exactly. Um, and so at that time, he noted mainly that Ted was a compulsive liar who consistently shifted between like different surface level personas in order to pass in normal society. Um, and he concluded that likely Ted had antisocial personality disorder. Um, and Dr. Carlisle actually went on to study these traits in uh, many other killers. And you can read kind of more about that. He has a, a book out called Violent Mind, um, which is all about his assessment with Ted Bundy. Um, so if you want more information on his work, you can check that out. Um, but then the probably most well-known and the most referenced assessment was done by a psychiatrist named Dr. Dorothy Lewis. And so Lewis and her team of neurologists were studying serial killers, um, and they worked with Ted for two years, starting in 1987, all the way up until his eventual execution in 1989. And so initially, she agreed with the antisocial personality disorder diagnosis, um, and she added an additional diagnosis of bipolar disorder, although at the time it was referred to as manic depression. Um, so she believed that Ted did most of his killing when he was feeling depressed, um, either due to increased alcohol use or as sort of a really sick way of kind of cheering himself up and letting go of those depressed feelings. Um and then she believed that his times where he was more focused on his academic or career um, and definitely that grandiose showmanship in the trial um, were probably occurring during manic episodes, according to her. Um, but it didn't stop there. Over time, Dr. Lewis also suggested, uh, kind of towards the end of her work with him, that he might have dissociative identity disorder or DID. And DID is um, kind of what used to be known as like multiple personality disorder. Um, so the idea is that the, the mind sort of fractures into different parts in order to protect someone from trauma. And these parts can front or be in control of a person independently, essentially. And so she believed that Ted had some sort of alternate personalities that actually did some of the murders, which would explain why Ted kind of didn't remember some of the details, at least claimed he didn't remember. Now, at the time, back in the 80s, DID was highly distrusted and ridiculed kind of by the mental health profession as a whole. Um, and so Dr. Lewis experienced a lot of kind of blowback for that idea. Um, and at the same time, in her studies with serial killers, there were others as well that she was also reporting to have kind of these dissociative disorders. And so she kind of got ridiculed a little bit, um, kind of following this. So it's hard to know what to think about some of her research based on that. Um, and then at the same time, Looking back, right, because now we've got some distance, we have more science, um, we know more about certain things. There have been a lot of kind of retroactive reviews of Ted's assessments and tests he may have taken, that kind of thing. 
Um, but mostly the uh, agreed upon diagnoses that the, the majority of psychiatrists or psychologists tend to land on um, would be antisocial personality disorder, narcissistic personality disorder, and addiction. So a couple things uh, are jumping out at me on your explanation you just gave. The bipolar disorder doesn't make sense to me. I would think, if anything, it would be a manic state that he would be doing these frenzy killings and not a depressed state. And then with the DID or multiple personality diagnosis, I would just think that Ted was playing to her to get a diagnosis like that so that he could um, say he was incompetent to stand trial. What do you think and about that and how off base I am? And then what do you think, um, you, what, how would you, I guess, diagnose Ted? So kind of based on what I've read, um, I also agree that I don't think bipolar disorder seems to fit very well. Um, not necessarily because of when the murders were taking place, but I don't think there was documented kind of ups and downs over time, right? And typically bipolar disorder manifests, you see it kind of late teens, early 20s. Um, and people around him would have noticed if he was oscillating between depressed and manic states and probably would have commented on it much sooner if it was there. As for the DID diagnosis, um, I know Ted did kind of refer sometimes to kind of an other entity in him um, that would sort of take over when he was doing the murders and then would kind of fade away when, you know, he was done. Um, but that one is not sort of how an, an alternate personality works because if um, it was a true alternate, then um, likely he'd have absolutely no memory. There'd be amnesia of the entire thing, and he'd have no idea that he was even that had even happened. Um, and so, someone who is maybe looking for DID, like Dr. Lewis may have been doing, since it was sort of kind of one of her her favorite diagnoses at the time. Um, like, I think you could get pulled into that, but I don't believe personally, that Ted had DID either. Um, just based on my research um, and understanding, I would probably go with um, kind of the diagnoses we've talked about already. So I'd say he's probably a sociopath um, with antisocial personality disorder and narcissistic personality disorder. So two pop culture references just came to my mind during uh, what you just said. Primal Fear have you seen that movie with Edward Norton? I have. Yep. Okay. That made my that made Edward Norton like my favorite actor. He it's an amazing movie. So great in that movie. Mm -hmm. I recommend anyone go watch that. And then Dexter with his dark passenger. Mm -hmm. The way that Ted's sort of describing, you know, what he's trying to pull off as DID potentially is just sounds to me like that. So that was just. Absolutely. And honestly, those are two pop culture references that come to mind as well when kind of talking on the subject. Uh, one other question. Can you clear, clarify for me that I thought that if you ha if you were a sociopath, then you had um, antisocial personality. Like, I thought it was the same. Like, But you're saying it's two different diagnoses to have antisocial personality disorder and sociopathic personality. Oh, my goodness. You know what I'm trying to say. Go ahead. <laughs> right, yeah. So they are different things. Um, for one... Um, being a sociopath or a psychopath aren't technically diagnoses in the DSM. Um, they are more what we'd call 
um, like patterns um, or like types of brain function almost, right? Because we were looking at that complete lack of empathy and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and antisocial personality disorder is acknowledged in the DSM for one. Um, and then also it um, is more describing a like a series of traits or behaviors um, over time. And it is possible to be someone with antisocial personality disorder, but not be like a sociopath or a psychopath. Okay. Clear as mud, sort of. But that's what you get when you start diving into this mental health stuff. Um, And Courtney and I are doing our best to try to explain it to you. So again, if you have questions, please email us. Um, Well, anyhow, Ted managed to barely escape death twice. Once on July 2nd, 1986, when he received a stay of execution, only 15 minutes before he was set to die, and again on November 18th, 1986, when a stay was issued just seven hours before his appointed time. Well, finally, with all of his appeals exhausted and no other stalling tactics available to him, Ted's final death warrant was issued on November 17th, 1988. All in all, Bundy's trials and appeals cost the taxpayers $6 million, and that was in 1980 dollars. If Bundy got life in prison at the time and he had lived to be 80, at the going rate of $34 a day, it would have cost less than $500,000 for life in prison. This is one of the reasons I personally do not support the death penalty. It's just fiscally irresponsible, and this was brought to my attention years ago when I worked with a medical provider whose wife was an assistant DA and had um, told us that uh, sentencing someone to death is way more expensive than life in prison. However, in this case, the public was very happy he received the death penalty. They probably did not care how much it cost um, because his crimes were so heinous. Courtney, do you have an opinion on the death penalty? I do. Um, My personal opinion is that I I oppose the death penalty. Um, To me, the idea of killing someone because they killed someone just seems a little bit hypocritical. Um, And then there's also... Um, a lot of research that suggests that the death penalty does not actually reduce crime. And especially among things like people like serial killers, it doesn't prove as a deterrent against murdering people. Um, And then if we just think about that tiny proportion of the population that are serial killers, um, they really understand death. They might even like death. Death is easy and it's not something that they fear. So... From my perspective, um, I would think that life in prison, where they are controlled by the government, they don't have access to things that give them pleasure, they're not able to act on their impulses, would be much more uncomfortable and impactful of a punishment. Well, and, and perhaps they could be researched, and I mean, who knows? And, you know, people like Ed Kemper, they make audiobooks. Um, you know, there's, there's stuff that prisoners can do that could help, you know, society in some way. Right, exactly. During the last few days of his life, Ted asked for multiple chances to give interviews and stated that he finally wanted to confess to his crimes. Finally. I suggest you watch the videos of these final interviews. They're pretty creepy. Um, he's kind of scrawny at this point and... He, he just, I, so I recommend checking out the documentary, Ted Bundy, a faking it special. 
In this documentary, apparently there are three obvious tells that Bundy has in these interviews we were just talking about. One of these tells is eye closure. So he does this, um, and what the um, the expert says that when you do this eye closure, the way he's doing it, kind of slow after questions, this can create distance between the person and the words and the lies they are telling. He also sh uh, shrugs his shoulder on one side, and this typically means that a person has no clue as to what they are really talking about. But he also shakes his head no when he's saying something in the affirmative. Um, the third tell is that Bundy is constantly staring down the camera when he slips up. It's like he's looking at the camera as he would an audience to see if they're buying what he's saying when he makes a verbal blunder. Courtney, do you have anything to say about verbal cues and body language and um, anything else? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm not an expert in, you know, body language or like micro expressions or things like that. Most of what I know came from watching the show Lie to Me, I'll be honest. I know that's not scientific, so don't hate me. But so what I do know um, from just sort of reading about and understanding nonverbal communication is that the nonverbals are far more important than the actual words that are being said, right? So it's we get much more information about meaning or intention from the tone of voice they use, the volume of voice, facial expressions, and body language. And so when you're faced with speech or language that doesn't match up with body language, my instinct would be to trust the body and not the words. That makes sense. Well, we have um, Ted's last meal, and as we cover these serial killers, if we have that information, we're going to share that with you. His last meal was steak and eggs, and we also have his last words. They were directed to Jim, who was his attorney, and Fred, who was a minister, and this is what they were. Jim and Fred, I'd like you to give my love to my family and friends. Ted was then executed via the electric chair at 7.16 a.m. on January 24, 1989. There was a huge crowd outside the Florida jail, and they were all chanting and holding up signs that said, Burn, Bundy, Burn. There is news footage of this. You can find it on YouTube. Um, you can see the hearse that comes to the back of the prison to take his body, and it's, it's kind of riotous looking. Uh, Bundy left behind his ex-wife, Carol, whom had divorced him in 1986, his daughter, Rose, who was six at the time of the death, his siblings, and his long-suffering mother, Eleanor. To this day, his mother continues to state that she believes Ted was innocent, despite the evidence and despite his confessions. Courtney, what prompted the divorce from Carol? Um, at one point, it seems like she ate up everything he had to say and was her biggest, his biggest supporter. Absolutely. So um, in the beginning, Carol reportedly truly, truly believed that Ted was innocent. And as long as he continued to tell her that he was innocent, she believed him and was by his side. Um, however, when he, you know, started giving confessions, when he started talking to, you know, not to her, but also to, you know, the psychologists and the journalists and things like that. Um, and she realized that everything that she, he had told her before was total bullshit. Um, that's when she filed for divorce um, because she could no longer believe that he was innocent and now knew that he really was a serial killer. Um, and so shortly after the divorce was finalized, you know, her 
um, and their daughter changed their names and have led pretty quiet lives trying to break any association at all from Bundy. Yeah, I can't I can't imagine being the daughter of a serial killer, especially one as infamous as Ted Bundy. I hope that um, she doesn't have to deal with any of that. Yeah. Sins of the father, it's nothing to do with her. Right. And I do think one one thing that spared her at least a little bit was that she never um, like really had contact with him or spent time with him. You know, you can't bring a baby to visits on death row. Gotcha. Well, so that's the end of our analysis of this serial murderer. Um, we do have a few quote, quotes that we wanted to share with you before we end for the day. And uh, I'll start. These are Ted Bundy quotes. I don't feel guilty for anything. I feel sorry for people who feel guilt. We serial killers are your sons. We are your husbands. We are everywhere. And there will be more of your children dead tomorrow. I am the most cold-hearted son of a bitch you will ever meet. When you feel that last bit of breath leaving their body and you're looking right into their eyes, a person in that situation is God. I just like to kill. I wanted to kill. Well, Courtney, in conclusion, I think we can safely say that Ted Bundy was indeed addicted to murder. Yes. Yes, he was. Well, we hope that you enjoyed our research and our attempt to convey all this information with to you. And we will be back next week with a brand new case. Courtney, do you want to talk about that? I actually think I'm going to keep that one um, a secret for now. So all our listeners will have to tune in and be surprised. Okay. Sounds good to me. All right, everybody. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye.